You're listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond-White in what is the final concluding episode of this program. Over the past eight months, I've tried to offer a futuristic, utopian vision of how my beloved Canada might pursue a 50-year plan for peace, prosperity, order, good government, and a sustainable planet. I've presented ideas, technologies, policies, and strategies, yes, mostly unrealistic as I cheerfully whistle past the climate graveyard. So, why stop at 50 years? What might a successful 100-year outcome look like? And while we're at it, let's seek a glimmer of hope in the Middle East. Well, where to start? One of my heroes growing up was Sir Winston Churchill, the Lion of England, a great man, the indispensable leader in the war against Hitler and the Nazis. But then there was the other Churchill, the one who in 1937 called Palestinians a dog in the manger, with no right to live in the Middle East. He declared, and I quote, I do not admit that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the Blacks of Australia by the fact that a stronger race, a higher-grade race, or at any rate a more worldly-wise race, has come in and taken their place. Like many of his generation, he was a racist, plain and simple. English racism arguably sowed the seeds of the demise of the British Empire. That empire, however had already sowed the seeds of so much conflict that we see here today. By 1945, England was exhausted. Its colonies demanded independence. Even the Commonwealth was limp. Meanwhile, the United States was waiting. Americans entered both world wars very late, very reluctantly, and very profitably. When the Second War ended armed with nuclear bombs, the U.S. was the new superpower, the undisputed leader of capitalism during the Cold War. So, skip ahead to the present. Washington is now faltering. American democracy is failing. Dictators are on the rise. An overcrowded planet armed to the teeth faces a climate disaster. For Canada, this is a moment of extreme danger and opportunity. The good news. America, notwithstanding, democracies have built a strong foundation of alliances and treaties in security, trade, and other areas. For all the bad guys out there, there are a lot of good guys. More good news. Canada's strength is in natural resources. With indigenous self-government and a renovated constitution, those riches can be unlocked. Canada could see a boom in mining, energy, transportation and renewable resources. With wealth comes influence. Strategically, Canada will continue to engage China and other adversaries on climate change and other issues. Adversaries, not enemies. Our hope is that authoritarian governments will over time evolve towards democracy in order to thrive. Taiwan's a good example. It can happen. To achieve a peaceful, sustainable planet a half-century from now, Canada's best hope lies in a strong and restructured alliance of democracies. Let me call this alliance a new commonwealth. Currently, 
democracies like Canada participate in a host of treaties and agreements. The European Union, NAFTA, NATO, the Indo-Pacific Security Alliance, on it goes. Some involve trade, other security, law of the sea, telecommunication space, hits an endless list, a patchwork. Some work, some don't, most are in between. In addition, experts have put forward many great ideas on the table to deal with other specific problems, like treaties to eliminate tax havens or to set minimum taxes, or a fee on global financial transactions to fund international agencies. We see global standards emerging for corporate governance, social responsibility, and carbon neutrality. Lots of good work is underway. The best of these ideas could be the basis of a treaty to create a unified new commonwealth. That is, a confederation of democracies with shared values and interests. There are huge efficiencies to be found in more cooperation, both for security and economic sustainability. Canada's first goal should be to identify international agreements that can work as the building blocks. Think of it as a jigsaw puzzle, the pieces still in a box. Put it together and you can see if pieces are missing and if there are pieces that actually belong in a different box. The picture that emerges would become the new Commonwealth, one powerful entity. Countries would be either in or out. The Commonwealth would lead on issues with global reach. The member countries would retain authority over national and local issues. But instead of a patchwork of agreements on trade, security, or climate, the Commonwealth would have a single voice, a single law, a single set of regulations. All members would play by the same rules. And, of course, they'd enjoy the same benefits. A universal code of rights and freedoms would be created along with rule by law. Non-member countries would negotiate with the Commonwealth on issues like trade rather than cut deals with a bunch of different countries. The Commonwealth would seek to grow and expand and to invite new members. The conditions to join would be clear. Countries not in the Commonwealth would be helped to meet those conditions. The United States would likely be a laggard in all this. Our neighbor is a wild card. A commonwealth would be a tough sell in the United States. Now, if democracy loses the U.S. 2024 elections, Canada would quickly move closer to Europe and loosen ties with Washington. These are, indeed, dangerous times. This new Commonwealth, by the way, is different from what the World Economic Forum proposal was, which was labeled a Great Reset. That proposal, as I understand it, led a coalition of multinational corporations, governments, and civil society organizations manage the capitalist economies. Well, color me skeptical. Already banks and big business tend to overwhelm democracy. A new commonwealth would need real democracy to be credible, and that's a huge challenge. How would the new legislature work? How much representation would every country have? How would a new global constitutional court be structured? These are indeed tricky issues. The European Union has much to teach us. Canada also has experience in this type of debate, but it would 
be incredibly difficult. Sorting out which issues are to be addressed by the Commonwealth and which are retained by national and local levels is equally complex. And for all these reasons, the negotiations for a new Commonwealth treaty would be slow, painful, and democratic. The bureaucracy would inevitably be huge, rule-bound, and often annoying. The wheels of bureaucracy grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. It's part of the price for living in a civilized democracy. Imagine, however, that 50 years from now, a new commonwealth is created. Non-members would be helped to make changes to their political systems so they can join. Trade, aid, communications, humanitarian assistance, peacekeeping, and other tools would go into assisting developing countries. Always, democracies would collaborate with adversaries on shared problems like climate change, plastic pollution, and debris in space. We'd engage in sport and cultural diplomacy, all this practical stuff. A key challenge to the new Commonwealth would be to prove that nations, tribes, cultures can have peace and still retain their identities and their national pride. The new Commonwealth would have to move past the stale concept of the nation-state. Elimination of borders is a key to long-term peace. A new borderless democratic confederation would allow this. We already see it happening. It's emerging in Europe. Many problematic borders were actually drawn up by colonial powers for their own convenience. Tribes and nations were often divided and split apart. 30 million Kurds, for example, thus found themselves split between Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. In North America, nations like the Sioux and the Haudenosaunee were denied sovereignty, denied access to their kin on the other side of a white man's border. Sometimes colonial powers packaged historic enemies into one country seething with rage. Look at Rwanda, where for generations the minority Tutsi were empowered to govern the Hutu. That ended in a brutal genocide. Or Myanmar, where five and a half years ago, half a million Muslim Rohingyas were driven from their homeland in a clear example of ethnic cleansing. Globally, an endless list of people, tribes, nations, have felt the pain caused by colonial decisions and have never known real democracy. A new commonwealth must offer this as a different path. Now you're probably asking yourself, what about the UN? In an ideal world, the United Nations would solve global problems. In the real world, the UN is ineffective. In an ideal world, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank would lead. In the real world, they fall far short. These 20th century structures are outdated and ineffective, and at some point international organizations will have to be dramatically reformed or replaced. That is in fact the long-term plan, the hundred-year goal. A new commonwealth would lead the reform of global institutions, seeing itself as simply a milestone on the road to world federalism. World federalism is the idea of a democratic world government based on human rights and rule by law. A world federation 
would have authority on issues of global reach. All members of the Federation would control local and national issues. In short, it's much the same as the new Commonwealth, but global. For a global treaty, all countries would have to feel secure. China, Iran, and other nuclear powers would all have to agree to arms reduction and the elimination of the weapons industries. It would be the age of disarmament. The concept of world federalism has been around since the end of World War II, but has lost steam. As a concept, it's supported by members of all Canada's political parties. So as a first step in making all this happen, Canada could adopt legislation declaring world federalism as a formal goal, making it a diplomatic priority. All this, of course, is futurism, an exercise in imagination. There are a million reasons it will fail. So let me finish with one big, huge obstacle. Let me take on the most heated and treacherous dispute of all, Israel and Palestine. Both sides in this conflict have suffered terribly for, well, forever. On one side, the Jews were dispersed by Rome in a diaspora 2,000 years ago. They bore the brunt of the unimaginable industrial slaughter of the Nazi Holocaust, and most recently they felt the terror of October the 7th. On the other side, Arabs lived in Palestine for millennia, suffering frequent invasion and slaughter themselves. In 1948, in their catastrophe, millions were driven out of their homes. Terrorists from Irgun and the Stern Gang paved the way for Israel to even exist. Palestinians are under occupation. Illegal settlers take their land, and now they live the hell of Gaza. War crimes on both sides. Innocence on both sides. It's heartbreaking and painful. Decades ago, I spent time in Gaza, the West Bank, Syria, and refugee camps. I once met with the Crown Prince of Jordan, who was terrified by extremists of all three religions, and he was prophetic. In the West Bank, Jewish extremists told me they would fight the Israeli defense forces if Israel attempted to even close settlements. Palestinians were equally determined to get their land back. Christian extremists believed in Armageddon, a final battle between good and evil, when they, as true believers, would be lifted to heaven. Peace activists were barely heard through the thunder of bombs. What seems missing is an ultimate outcome, that is, a long-term solution that works for everybody except the lunatics and has a chance of success. For decades, we've heard of a two-state solution, two countries with clear borders based on some previous point in time. It's time to say... This is hopeless. It's impossible. Opportunities have all slipped away. It's a Gordian knot. Arabs will never willingly abandon their homes in Israel. Zionists will refuse to leave their settlements in Palestine. Majorities on both sides may yearn for peace, but no one can cut the Gordian knot. The two-state solution is fiction. Acknowledge it.
to an outsider like myself, the solution is obvious, if naive. Jerusalem should be an international city sacred to and governed by all three religions. Something similar could apply to the entire region. That is, two nations sharing land with no internal borders and democracy reinvented. Clearly, this is many decades away. This shared state solution echoes what was proposed by England in the 1917 Balfour Declaration. It promised, and I quote, a national home for the Jewish people that did not prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. A Jewish home, not a Jewish state with fixed borders. The existence of Palestine was a stated fact. The land would have to be home for both nations with equal rights. There's a war on, and it's not happening in my lifetime. Yet nobody can tell us how else it can end well. There is no vision, no future, no hope, no ultimate outcome except through a shared state. In the short term, peace is the first step. Replacing the war leaders on both sides is next. Avoiding war with Iran is critical. In the coming decades, an uneasy stalemate might slowly allow wounds to heal. And this is where Canada comes in. No, no one can solve the Middle East. Only the people of the region can do it, and we know how that's going. But Canada can reimagine democracy, renovate our own constitution, and demonstrate new ways of governing with an eye to the future. Canada can lead by example. For Israel and Palestine to share a state, they would require shelter within a broad, peaceful government, such as a new commonwealth. Over the intervening decades, Canada can help build a new commonwealth and push for world federalism. We can fight climate change. We can promote democracy. And if we succeed, it opens a door for hope in the Middle East. The two nations have no choice but to transcend the colonial concept of borders and states. Both nations, Jewish and Palestinian, could find security within a larger federation, part of one world with one planet to preserve. Other countries might see the same opportunity. Kurds, Rohingyas, Haudenosaunee, the wonderfully diverse cultures and peoples of the planet could find hope in a global political democracy that values diversity. Countries that fear their own minorities would see the better solution. Their leaders could become revered for enshrining their national identity in the new global federation. All destinations are possible if you know where you intend to go. But as Yogi Berra warned, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. It should all start, as Canada's Indigenous elders can tell you, by thinking of how our actions today will be felt seven generations from now. Do this, and we can reimagine Canada. We can imagine the future and how to get there. You've been listening to the final episode of Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond-White. I'd like to 
to express my appreciation to Tom Plant for the theme music, Tom Evans for the art, Harbinger Media for their wonderful collection of independent Canadian podcasters, and to the World Federalist Association, who I have revered for many years. That's it for this series. Take care. Mm-hmm.